there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. The references for those two scriptures that I always use as my opener are Jeremiah 31.3, You are loved with an everlasting love, and Deuteronomy 33.27. It says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you this time about a subject almost as explosive as dynamite. A lot of you are going to hate me for this. Some of you will agree, I trust. And some of you might wish later on that you'd taken my advice. Well, the subject is courtship. We read in the Bible that when Jesus preached, some mocked, some rejected, and some believed. And if we're going to be faithful to his word, I guess we have to expect that this will be the response. But this whole thing of courtship and wooing, when I look around, when I read the letters that I get, when I hear the stories of heartbreak and chaos in what they call dating and I guess courtship is a word that's virtually never used anymore. Nobody knows what it means. But my heart does sink, and I think if only we could get back to some basics, back to some straight edge, a straight edge for our thinking as to how this ought to be conducted. Well, of course, I had to look up the word courtship, too, to be sure that I didn't have a skewed idea of it, and it said in my dictionary to solicit in love, to sue for the affections of, an approach to marriage. Now, courtship is a poor word, I guess, for what's going on now because there's no courtliness about it, no rules, no notion of courtesy or gentlemanliness or ladylikeness. In fact, those words are, are odious words to most younger people. You may wonder, now why would she choose a subject like courtship for Lent? Well, Ash Wednesday is February 13th, and the prayer in the ancient prayer book, prayer called the Collect, which simply means that everyone is collected together to pray the same prayer, says this, Grant us, O Lord, to begin our Christian warfare with holy fasts, that as we are about to fight against the spirits of wickedness, we may have the protection of self-restraint. The whole field of courtship very badly needs the protection of self-restraint. And the fasts, which have been traditional in the Christian church for centuries, are of different kinds. They're not all uh, food fasts, but it's a spiritual discipline. 
physical discipline becomes spiritual discipline, doesn't it? Especially when we do it for God and when we choose deliberately to deny ourselves certain pleasures which are normal and natural and God-given. So I think it's fitting and proper that we should take stock of our lives before God, draw aside from the world's pressures in this Lent season as much as we possibly can in order to listen to him, to be rebuked and corrected by him, to open ourselves to a fresh cleansing and filling of his spirit. Are you willing to think about that, to consider doing the same thing? 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we are to be holy. This is the will of God, that you should be holy. And it's very interesting to me that the very next verse says you should abstain from fornication. Fornication means any kind of sexual sin. Specifically, it means sexual relationships between people who are not married, but it's a much broader word than that, and it does cover all forms of sexual sin. If we are going to be holy, we must abstain from fornication. Let no one misunderstand and think that what I'm saying is if we're going to be holy, we have to refrain from sex. We don't have to refrain from sexual activity if we're married. And yet even married couples sometimes choose to abstain from sexual relations for a given period. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. In order that they may give themselves to God and then come back together again in a normal marital relationship. But the Bible is very clear that any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage is sin. You cannot be holy and fornicate. So there is a link here between my subject, courtship, and this season of Lent. I wrote a book some years ago called Passion and Purity. It deals with what it means to bring your love life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it tells the story of how Jim Elliott and I fell in love as college students and determined that we would remain pure before God and give our love back to God for whatever he wanted to do with it. If he wanted to bring us together again, he could do that. And it's a long story of five and a half years of waiting for God to give Jim the green light to ask me to marry him. We did not have a commitment to each other. We didn't even call it a relationship. But... The response to that book, Passion and Purity, has been overwhelming. I gave a talk in Kansas City to a Campus Crusade group that met there back in 1983. I have gotten piles of letters from some of those students. The subject of my talk was Passion and Purity. There is abundant evidence of the chaos wrought by a lack of self-restraint. Without the protection of self-restraint, we're in big trouble. I had spoken on this subject one time in a church, and I was back at the book table afterwards, and a, a young man came up to me and he said, but holy cow, lady, you got to have sex. Do you think that's true? Well, if you do, where can I begin with this discussion? Here, in this area of sex more than anywhere else, we must not be guided by mood, feeling, and impression 
instead of fact, conviction, and faith. And I want to give you some very clear, hard facts. Number one is that God designed sexual attraction. God made men, and he wanted them to be men. He made women, and they were meant to be women. It's God's plan that men and women should be attracted to each other. The Bible says the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. And I can never say things as well as C.S. Lewis does, so I refer to him often. I want to read from his book, Mere Christianity. In the chapter on Christian behavior, he says, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion, and nearly all the greatest love poetry in the world has been produced by Christians. That was an interesting fact to me. I didn't know that. If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. But, of course, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, they may mean the state into which the sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of. If they mean that, says Lewis, I think they are wrong. I think it is everything to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. Before we can be cured, we must want to be cured. Those who really wish for help will get it. But for many modern people, even the wish is difficult. I would ask you to look into your own heart today. I've finished with C.S. Lewis now. This is Elizabeth Elliot talking again. Look into your own heart. Is there a desire to be pure as God means pure? To be freed from the guilt we all know so well? It's pretty hard to bear looking very deeply into our hearts, isn't it? We shouldn't be doing it for the purposes of living over the details of our past sins, not for some anxious scrutiny, not investigating our past confessions. That's morbid. That sinks us into self-love. But look into our hearts in order to find matter for contrition, for heartfelt calm, silent sorrow. We are today what we are today and not what we might have been. We have had chances and we have made poor use of them. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. If you're in either category and I am in both, think about the protection of self-restraint during this Lenten season. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking again today about that explosive subject, courtship. This is a season of Lent, a season when we should be disciplining ourselves in a special, thoughtful way. 
a time for special self-restraint and examination of our hearts. Courtship, what does it have to do with Lent? Well, courtship is an area that requires enormous amount of discipline and self-restraint if we're not going to make a total mess out of our lives. Nowadays, poster after poster, film after film, novel after novel, associate the ideas of sexual indulgence with the ideas of health, normality, youth, frankness, and good humor. C.S. Lewis says, now this association is a lie. Like all powerful lies, it is based on a truth, the truth acknowledged above that sex in itself, apart from the excess and obsessions that have grown around it, is normal and healthy, and all the rest of it. The lie consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. Now this, on any conceivable view, and quite apart from Christianity, must be nonsense. Well, I agree a thousand percent with C.S. Lewis. Most young people are ready to think seriously of marriage when they get to be about 30 or so nowadays. There was a time when most young people were thinking seriously by the time they were 16. But unfortunately, by the time they're 16 or maybe 14 or 13, they have experimented with sex, not even thinking that sex has anything particularly to do with marriage. Often these experiments lead to grave harm and almost always to enormous regrets. I have piles of letters telling me, if only I had had your book, Passion and Purity, or that little booklet, Sex is a Lot More Than Fun, if only I'd had it sooner, if only I'd had it ten years ago. Well, how soon must we start teaching our children about preserving the gift of virginity? I wrote that little booklet, Sex is a Lot More Than Fun, for children between the ages of 10 and 16, with the hope that in those simple 12 pages, at least one thought would be lodged in their minds permanently. Virginity is a priceless gift. It can only be given away once. To whom do you want to give it? Would you like to preserve it for the person you marry, or do you want to come to the marriage bed used? Matthew 13:44 says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The man who found it buried it again and for sheer joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field. I believe that the kingdom of heaven is worth selling all you've got for. Well, most of us don't really believe that in practice, do we? I'm sure many of you would agree we would be hesitant to disagree with what Scripture says, even though we may find it very indigestible at times. And I don't mean to say that I practice what I claim here, but I do believe the Word, and I pray that the Lord will enable me continually to live in the light of the kingdom of heaven and to live for the kingdom of heaven. But it's very easy to be squeezed into the world's mold and we hear expressions such as, I'm my own person. I'll do what I like with my life. It's my life. 
I can find happiness my way. Do you buy that notion? The scripture says that the riches of the kingdom are hidden. What do I have to sell in order to buy them? Well, first of all, myself. I must give up myself, my soul, my body. Not sell them, but surrender. I must give myself to God. Giving oneself to God is the only safe way to live in this dangerous and hazardous world. When people talk to me about the will of God being scary to them, I sometimes say, well, outside of the will of God, do you expect to find security, safety, enjoyment? What about peace? The only safe place I know of is in the will of God. Paul says that we are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. Give your bodies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And that means death. Sacrifice means death. But that death is a gateway to joy. Every time you and I say no to ourselves and yes to God, when the will of God cuts across ours, that is a death. And it opens out into joy. That's the reason for the title of my radio program, Gateway to Joy. This life involves all kinds of deaths, but when they are received and accepted and offered back to God, they become transformed into gateways to joy. The crux of the matter is, whose am I? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, You do not belong to yourselves. You were bought at a price then honor God in your body. And the context of that verse is the subject of fornication, sexual sin. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ? It is not true that the body is for lust. It is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your body is a shrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit? And the Spirit is God's gift to you. And then follows that verse that I just quoted. You do not belong to yourselves. You were bought at a price. Then honor God in your body. I'm sure that I'm speaking to many people who gave their virginity to the wrong person. You know, you don't lose your virginity. You give it away. And someone will ask, but what if I was raped? Well, if you were raped and there was no slightest hint of consent on your part, then I believe that in God's sight, you remain a virgin. You didn't give your virginity and nobody can steal it. But to those of you who gave it to the wrong person, what can you do now? Well, first of all, you confess to God that it was a sin. If that person is still around, I think you should confess it to him or her. God will forgive you, and you can start over. Remember that his grace is greater than all our sin, and there's no way that anything that you or I do could possibly exhaust the grace of God. It's an ocean. 
It's as though we were to be a tiny clamshell saying, I wonder if there will be enough water in this next tide to fill me up. That's how absurd it is to wonder whether the grace of God can cover your sins. Our lives are only rightly ordered if the paramount interest is beyond this life, not of the things of time, but of eternity. St. Augustine said, Time and eternity go in different directions. Two loves founded two cities. There's an endless warfare. Where does your love lie? Where is your treasure? What kingdom are you living for? The kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? Don't be surprised that there's a conflict. Don't be surprised that a spiritual warfare is waged. We need to expect friction, jarring, weariness, failure. These lead to discouragement, don't they? Who am I talking to that's experiencing friction? Just something that jars on their nerves. Weariness? Anybody tired out there? What about failure? The feeling of what's the use? Well, somebody has said that is a pusillanimous question. Don't ever ask what's the use. That's Satan's question. Let's not chime in. But we're talking about courtship. As in every area of life, we must begin with God, with whose we are, whom we decide to serve, and if it is God, then what are his orders? His orders are abstain. The protection of self-restraint. Surrender your desire. God says, my son, give me thine heart. If you give your heart to God first, you won't need to give it to anybody else until God chooses the person to whom you are to give your heart in marriage. God says, present your body to me. If you present that body to him, doesn't that define the use that you're going to make of that body from now on, especially the sexual use? And I'm talking to those of you who have misused your sexuality. You can start over. God will not restore your virginity, but he will restore your chastity and your purity. Surrender your desire to God and determine to receive what he wants to give you. God bless you. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. We're talking during this Lenten season about one particular area of self-restraint, sexuality, or courtship. I like to use that word courtship. It is an old word, but it covers a lot of ground, and I like it much better than dating because I don't think dating has very many precedents in history. It's a very recent development, and it's not working very well. My observation is that this do-it-yourself game that people are playing is leading to heartbreak and disaster rather than to the happiness that they're looking for. I told you about a young man that had come up to me after I had talked on the subject of chastity, and he said, but holy cow, lady, you got to have sex. And I think that view is, is bought by a lot of people nowadays, that chastity is simply impossible. And the only reason that they think that is because they never have really tried it. 
But as C.S. Lewis illustrates so beautifully in his children's books, the Narnia books, when a thing has to be attempted, one must never think about the possibility or the impossibility. When a thing has to be attempted, don't think about the possibility or the impossibility. You just simply do it. Now, we can't remain perfectly chaste without God's help. We cannot do this by ourselves. Human efforts are never going to attain holiness. So I, I hope I've made that perfectly clear. We do have a will to offer to God. We have bodies to offer to God. We have the privilege of making those choices. But we cannot be pure. We cannot be holy without the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Once a commitment to God's will and God's way of doing things is made, then you've started on the right road, the only right road, the route to eternal happiness and earthly blessings. Do I sound terribly dogmatic? Well, I am, I guess, pretty dogmatic on the fact that it's the only right road, and I mean the only right road, if you want happiness, if you want blessing. God knows how to give us that, but we have to surrender ourselves to him. Would you like to be married? Have you made your own list of characteristics that you're requiring? Well, I want to tell you one story of one young man's approach to marriage. His name was Charles M. Alexander. He was a well-known hymn writer back at the turn of the century. He traveled with D.L. Moody as his music director or song leader. And Charles M. Alexander tells this story about his own courtship. I had reserved the right in my mind to choose my own wife and had decided that she must have this and the other qualities of mind and heart, but had never been able to find one who combined all the desired qualifications. During the Christmas season of 1903, which I was spending alone in London, I surrendered the whole matter to God, never dreaming that his answer would come so quickly, or that Birmingham would be the place where I should find my wife. During an afternoon meeting in Bingley Hall a week or two later, I noticed a young lady upon one of the platform seats. Immediately, a feeling came over me that there was the answer to my prayer. I did not know who she was, but observed her closely and grew to love her, for I saw that she was after the salvation of souls. Notice, he says, he grew to love her. This was all within the space of one meeting. I noticed that in the after-meetings, she usually went down to the back of the hall and was not afraid to stay late and work long and earnestly, sometimes with the most wretched-looking and poorly clad women and girls. The more I saw of her, the more thoroughly I was convinced that as far as I was concerned, she was my choice, though I was still asking the Lord constantly to take everything into his hands. I had noticed a silver-haired lady with her, evidently her mother. One day, early in the mission, this lady gave me an invitation to spend my rest day at her home. I accepted, and after she had gone, I turned to someone and asked who the lady was. Why, that is Mrs. Richard Cadbury, I was told. And after she had gone, I turned to someone and asked who the lady was. Why, that is Mrs. Richard Cadbury, I was told. 
This was a surprise, as I had already visited the home of some of her relatives. It was not until the last rest day of the mission that I, with several others of the mission staff, was entertained at Ufcolm, one of those strange English names of a house. Strangely enough, and quite unknown to each other until afterwards, my future wife and I were praying earnestly on that same Friday night for the Lord's guidance in this matter. Each of us had a hard battle to fight with our own self-will, but each finally surrendered to the Lord to have or not to have as he should will. It was not until two days after the mission had closed that I spoke a word to Miss Cadbury about it. And then, why, it was all settled in a few minutes. We were on our knees almost as soon as I had spoken to her, thanking the Lord for bringing us together and for the wonderful joy which we took as a gift direct from Him. Is that an unbelievable story to you? A young man who wants to get married, who makes up a list of what he's looking for, he doesn't find her. And then he spends time alone with God during that Christmas season, surrendered his list to God, and I'm sure that he must have said something like, Lord, here's my list. I'll take yours. He was saying, Thy will be done. And almost immediately, God brings this woman across his path. And almost immediately, he recognizes, this is the woman. Did they have a date? Not one. Two days after the mission, he spoke a word to Miss Cadbury about what God had been teaching him. And then it was all settled in a few minutes. We were on our knees almost as soon as I had spoken to her, thanking the Lord for bringing us together and for the wonderful joy which we took as a gift direct from him. Now, I want to give you eight principles that are illustrated in this story. The first is surrender to the will of God. The second is performance of his duties. Charles M. Alexander carried on the work that God had given him without sitting down and twiddling his thumbs and being distracted by his love longing. There's no consolation like obedience. So the second thing is performance of his duties. Third is expectancy that God would guide him. Do you really believe that God wants to? He's the shepherd. Doesn't it make sense that the shepherd wants to guide the sheep? He's much more interested in getting them where they belong than they are in getting there. So expect that God will guide. Number four, watchfulness as to God's guidance. Keep your eyes open. Look around. Pay attention to what God is showing you. Always with that constant prayer in your heart, thy will be done. Number five, he set character as priority. He does not say a word about whether this was a beautiful woman or not. He saw a godly woman, a woman whose heart was given to other people, a woman willing to give her life to Jesus. Character is what matters, not feelings, not looks. Number six, a new commitment of his natural feelings. Number seven, no dating, but a frank confession of love. And I'm sure that immediately after confessing his love for her, he must have asked her to marry him because it's, he says 
it was all settled in a few minutes. You don't have to go two and a half years, three years, six years, trying to make up your mind whether this is the right lady. If you have preceded with all of these other things. Number eight was the recognition of God's gift. To both Alexander and his future wife, when love was first confessed and accepted, the unmistakable leading of God was as clear as noonday. To both of them, the revelation had come with a bewildering ecstasy of holy joy. Never before had either opened the sacred deeps of the heart, and when love came in floods of overwhelming force, they gratefully accepted it as from the hand of God. Well, I sigh when I think of what's going on on Christian college campuses, in Christian seminaries. I talk to a lot of Christian students. We always have a Christian student living in our house. And I think if only they could know this plan. Let me read those eight principles one more time. First, surrender to God. Second, performance of duties. Third, expectancy. Fourth, watchfulness. Fifth, character is the priority. Sixth, a new commitment of natural feeling. Seven, no dating, but a frank confession of love. Eight, the recognition of God's gift. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you again today about courtship. Many of you are longing to be courted. Many of you women would love to be courted. Some of you men, I suppose, are wishing you knew how to do it. In yesterday's talk, I gave some principles of how God's way leads to marriage. Some principles that came from the life of Charles M. Alexander. I'm sure that some of my listeners were saying, well, how in the world can you know somebody if you've never dated them? I mean, this woman, you got to be kidding. You're going to get married without ever having a date? It's happened millions of times in human history. Dating is a very recent invention. And I don't think it works very well. I think it's for the birds. Jim and I, Jim Elliott and I, had one date when we were college students. And hardly anything else that could be called a date after we became missionaries until we were engaged, which was a long time after college. But I gave you a story yesterday, which is just one example of how it can work. And I heard of a much more recent example of almost exactly the same method. A young man who felt that it was time to get married, in fact, his parents were telling him, it's time you got married, but this young man was determined to do the will of God. And so he prayed about it, and to his surprise, it seemed that God was putting his finger on a certain woman who was not one that would have appealed to him particularly as far as her looks went. And he didn't know her very well at all. But again and again, as he prayed, this woman's name came to his mind. And often, in rather odd ways, she seemed to cross his path. What he didn't know was that the woman was praying at the same time that God would send her a man who would have the faith 
to propose to her without the whole idea of falling in love. And those two people are engaged. It can happen in the 1990s as well. But I want to take you back to a very ancient paradigm, the story of Abraham sending his servant out to find a wife for Isaac. The story is in Genesis 24, when Abraham had given his servant the instructions that he was to go and find a wife for Isaac. He promised that God would send his angel before him, and from there he was to take a wife for his son. He said, if the woman is unwilling to come with you, then you will be released from your oath to me, but you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath in those terms. This hand on the thigh thing was, was the sign in those days of swearing an oath, as nowadays we put a hand on the Bible. So the servant did what would be customary for a wealthy family in those days. He took ten camels from his master's hands and all kinds of gifts, and he set out in the direction that Abraham had chosen. And he did the logical thing. He went to where women could be observed, which was the village well. Towards evening, the time when the women came out to draw water, he made the camels kneel down by the well outside the city. And notice this, he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me good fortune this day. Keep faith with my master Abraham. Here I stand by the spring, and the women of the city are coming out to draw water. Let it be like this. I shall say to a girl, please lower your jar so that I may drink. And if she answers, drink, and I will water your camels also, that will be the girl whom thou dost intend for thy servant, Isaac. In this way I shall know that thou hast kept faith with my master. Now notice, he was asking for a sign from God. He was only going to request water for himself. Please lower your jar so that I may drink. But if the girl was the kind who would go the second mile, if she offered him not only a drink for himself, but also water for his camels, that would be a woman of character. So he said, may this be the way that I will know that it's the one you have chosen. But he had to make the choice to begin with. You see, our choices, our freedom of will, cooperate with the will of God. That was not going to be the final decision on the servant's part. But he had to make a move. You know, God can't lead us unless we're moving. And we have to be continually asking for his guidance. So he said, I'm going to make this move. Then you seal it by having the woman offer to draw water for the camels. And can you imagine drawing water for ten camels by hand from a well? I have no idea how much a camel drinks. I should have looked that up, but must be many gallons. Before he had finished praying silently, he saw Rebecca coming out with her water jug on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, who had had no intercourse with a man. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. Abraham's servant hurried to meet her and said, Give me a sip of water from your jar. Drink, sir, she answered, and at once lowered her jar onto her hand to let him drink. You can picture her with this great clay jar on her head. She lowers it to her hand so he can drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, Now I will draw water for your camels until they have had enough. So she quickly emptied her jar, 
and I think that also indicates her character. Into the water trough, she moved quickly. She was businesslike and thorough and brisk and efficient. She hurried again to the well to draw water and watered all the camels. Can't you just picture her running back and forth, running to the spring and, of course, walking back with the full jar? And all this time, what was the servant doing? Verse 21 of Genesis 24. The man was watching quietly to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels, also of gold, and said, Tell me, please, whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Nahor and Milcah. And we have plenty of straw and fodder, and also room for you to spend the night. So the man bowed down and prostrated himself to the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not failed to keep faith and truth with my master. For I have been guided by the Lord to the house of my master's kinsman. The most important things that I want to point out to you from this story are, first of all, that he prayed silently and he watched quietly and he prostrated himself to the Lord and thanked him for his guidance. I'm not suggesting that you find somebody else to go looking for a wife for you. I'm not suggesting that in our culture we have to return to the culture of Abraham's time. But within the culture in which we live, would it not be just as appropriate for a young man to pray for a long time, to pray earnestly, to surrender himself to the will of God, to seek to discern his will, to keep his eyes open, and to watch quietly? I'm sure that there would not be nearly as many disasters if any man's move toward marriage was preceded by prayer, by surrender, by the willingness to receive the woman that God gives him. It's really absurd, you know, to go by outward appearance. I had made a list for myself when I was about 16 years old in the back of my diary of what I was looking for in a husband. And there were a lot of very silly things on that list, but there were some important things, too. The most important thing is that he should be a Christian. The second thing would be that he was headed for the mission field. But I also wanted a man six feet three, like my father. I wanted him to be taller than I, even when I wear heels. And when I discovered that Jim Elliott was interested in me, I was disappointed because Jim was only five feet ten, just one inch taller than I. But... God had picked that man out for me. He had a whole lot of qualities that I hadn't even thought to ask for. And you know what? I was nothing like what Jim Elliott was looking for physically. He wanted a short, dark-haired, outgoing, athletic girl. I am none of the above. So it was not primarily physical attraction. It was two people who had spent time in prayer to God, had surrendered their own wills with a willingness to be single, if that was God's will, and then God in his way and in his time brought us together. May God give you wisdom 
in your courtship. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you again today on the subject of courtship. We've been going over a Christian view of sex. Christianity never outlaws sex at all. In fact, it affirms sexuality. But Christianity is very clear that sexual activity is to be limited to marriage and only marriage. And I would urge you to treasure your virginity. If you have not given away your virginity to the wrong person, preserve it. Wouldn't it be wonderful to come to the marriage bed for the first time, never having been used by somebody else? Seek God's design for your life. This is the season called Lent, which precedes Easter. An excellent time in which to take stock, confess your sins, practice self-restraint, and it wouldn't hurt any of us to do a little fasting. Why not give up the one particular food that you're just crazy about, that you feel as if you've got to have? That wouldn't hurt you in the least, and it would be a good way to prove to yourself that you're serious about self-discipline. Pray during Lent. Give yourself, methodically make a surrender of every corner of your life because remember that the world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear that's what first john 2:17 says but the man who is following the will of god is part of the permanent and cannot die one reason that i'm sure there is such chaotic condition in people's love life today is the lack of christian models Yesterday, I gave you that wonderful story of Abraham's servant looking for a wife for Isaac, praying about it, watching silently, accepting God's guidance. Genesis 24 tells that story in case you missed it. Check it out. The day before that, I gave the story of Charles M. Alexander, a young song leader who traveled with D.L. Moody, and the way in which God led him to his wife. An unbelievable story to modern minds, I suppose. But what are the models that young people have before them now? Television, movies, steamy novels, peers, not to mention the public moral collapse of Christian leaders. Certainly isn't surprising that young people get the idea that everybody does it. And nobody stays a virgin till age 20. But the truth is, many people do sleep around, and not very many guard their virginity. But I want to announce here and now, there are thousands of Christians who are being obedient to God in this area of strong temptation. There are virgins, both men and women. I get letters from them. I've had letters from men telling me that they have preserved their virginity, and one 28-year-old army officer told me, I'm still a virgin, but I have had to fight every inch of the way to preserve it. And he told me some appalling stories of things women had done to attempt to rob this man of his virginity. These young men and women who are still virgins are holding on for dear life to the principles of the Bible. These principles are laid down 
not for our suppression, much less to cheat us of something beautiful, but to lead us to true happiness and freedom. One of my models when I was a young woman was Betty Scott Stamm. And I want to read to you a little bit about their courtship when John and Betty Stamm were married. This is what led up to God's bringing them together. Betty wrote this poem, And shall I fear that there is anything that men hold dear thou wouldst deprive me of, and nothing give in place? That is not so. For I can see thy face and hear thee now, my child, I died for thee. And if the gift of love and life you took from me, shall I one precious thing withhold, one beautiful and bright, one pure and precious thing withhold? My child, it cannot be. Betty had been already a year at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago when John appeared among the students. His tall figure could not but attract attention. Betty noticed him. And about her, quiet and retiring as she was, he soon discovered something he had never found before, something that strangely attracted him. How do we discover violets hidden in the woods in spring? Well, they began going to a weekly prayer meeting of the China Inland Mission. Not together, but this was where they had opportunity to observe each other. Betty was one of the regular attendants. By this time, she was convinced that God was calling her to China. And John soon began coming to this China prayer meeting. Sometimes after the meetings, there would be a social hour when the refreshments were served. And Mr. Page would read from Rutherford's letters, already precious to John. And never shall I forget, he said, the look in Betty Scott's eyes as I repeated those wonderful verses on Emmanuel's land. So they had something in common there, which reminded me of how Jim and I discovered that we were both fans of Amy Carmichael. In the busy life of the Institute, the young people only met as fellow students, and so natural was their behavior that no one guessed that they had any special interest in each other. There's another principle to be imitated, I believe. Behave in a polite and courteous natural way in each other's presence instead of letting it be known immediately that we belong to each other or I'm interested in this guy and I I want to let the public know whatever happened to feminine modesty whatever happened to the manliness of wooing a woman and pursuing her and treating her like a lady and acting like a gentleman well, you can tell I'm an old lady, can't you? I don't suppose anybody else talks like this nowadays, but I'm going to keep on doing it as long as I have the opportunity. Just note the importance of the sort of things that they had in common. This should be the first consideration. I don't mean that you both have to love bowling, but I do think that it should be important if you discover that both of you are headed for the mission field, both of you are determined to do the will of God, and it's a wonderful discovery when you find that you read the same kind of books. Now, the importance of casual observation. We shall always remember John's first appearance in our pulpit, somebody wrote when John was preaching at a little church somewhere outside of Chicago. 
200 miles from Chicago, actually. His kind, courteous manner, his zeal and fresh enthusiasm, and his helpful sermons won us completely. Well, I wish I had time to read more of the descriptions. But John was going through some lessons in prayer himself. He wrote to his parents, It's all of grace. God does not reward us with what we need because of our faithfulness. Second, it is useless to get down and pray unless we search the word and let it search us. Third, it is not our faith that we must depend on, but God's faithfulness. Fourth, if the answer does not seem to come, there may be something in me that causes God to delay in very faithfulness. Fifth, faith must be intelligently based upon the revealed will of God. Sixth, I am not to expect the Lord to answer in just the way I suggest or think best. Means and manner and everything must be left to the will of God. Well, John had kept himself free from girls for a long, all his life. A question that was exercising his mind as he was preparing for China was that this great love had come into his life. He had never, in the years at home, preferred one girlfriend above another. He had kept entirely free in heart and outward relations. He expected not only to go to China unmarried, but to remain so for at least five years as his hope was to engage in pioneering evangelistic work. The forward movement of the China Inland Mission appealed to him, and he was ready to offer for the mountain tribes of the West. There's a man with self-restraint, the willingness to lay down his life for God, in spite of the fact that he had fallen in love with a girl. And Betty herself had written a poem about her ideal. I haven't got time to read that. But she had fallen in love with John, and he couldn't ask her to marry him because he wasn't sure that his way was going to open to follow her to China as soon as he would like it to. She was going to China first. And more than this, even if his going proved to be of the Lord, what about the life of hardship as a pioneer evangelist? Would it be fair to Betty to ask her to wait indefinitely? Well, John wrote to his parents, Betty knows that in all fairness and love to her, I cannot ask her to enter into an engagement with years to wait but we can have a real understanding keeping the interests of the Lord's work always first. The China Inland Mission has appealed for men, single men, to itinerate in sections where it would be almost impossible to take a woman until more settled work has been commenced. I promised the Lord that if fitted for this forward movement, I would gladly go into it. Our hearts are set to do his will. Betty and I have prayed much about this, and I'm sure that if our sacrifice is unnecessary, the Lord will not let us miss out on any of his blessings. There is a 20th century model of how to go about moving toward marriage. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.